Every religion and ideology has a visual symbol that communicates something about its history and, and or beliefs. For example, the lotus flower is associated with Buddhism. Because of its wheel shape, it's thought to depict either the cycle of birth and death or the emergence of beauty and harmony out of the muddy waters of chaos. Ancient Judaism assiduously avoided signs and symbols for fear of infringing on the second commandment. But modern Jews use the Star of David, a hexagram formed by two equilateral triangles. It speaks of God's covenant with David that his throne would be established forever, pointing up, and that the Messiah would be descended from him, pointing down. Islam adopted the crescent, a symbol of sovereignty in Byzantium long before the Muslim conquest. We know well, too, that the political ideologies of the 20th century also had their universally recognized signs. We saw that a lot for those of us who can remember the Cold War, the Marxist hammer and sickle representing industry and agriculture crossed to signify the union of workers and peasants of factory and field. Another one we all know, the swastika, has been traced back around 6,000 years. The arms of its cross are bent clockwise to, symbol, to symbolize either the cycle of the four seasons or the process of creativity and prosperity. Svasti, ironically, in San, is the Sanskrit word for well-being. At the beginning of the 20th century, it was taken up by some German groups as a symbol of the Aryan race. Then Hitler took it over, and it became the sinister sign of Nazi racial bigotry. In regard to a symbol, Christianity is no exception, although what we think of today wasn't its earliest. The cross was not its first symbol. Because of the wild accusations that were leveled against Christians and the terrible persecution they were enduring, they had to be incredibly circumspect about what they displayed in public. So the cross was avoided at first, not only because of its distinct association with Christ and the persecution this brought, but also because of its shameful association with ex the execution of common criminals. On the walls and ceilings of the catacombs, the burial chambers in Rome where, persecute, per, where persecuted Christians hid, the earliest Christian symbol most commonly used was a fish. Only insiders would know that the letters of the Greek word for fish, ichthus, five letters in Greek, iota, chi, theta, upsilon, and sigma, was an acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. There were a few others, like the chi-rho, the first two letters of the Greek word Christos. But by the second century, like sometime in the 100s, the universal symbol came to be a simple cross. They wished to communicate 
as central to their understanding of Jesus, not his birth, not his teaching or his service, not his resurrection or his reign, but his bloody death by crucifixion. From the second century on, Christians not only drew, painted, and engraved the cross as a symbol of their faith, but also made the sign of the cross on themselves or others. One of the first witnesses to this practice was Tertullian, a North African lawyer and theologian who lived during the second century, who wrote, at every step at every forward step and movement, at every going in and, and coming, coming out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon forehead or the body the sign of the cross. He also records that the sign of the cross was used by the bishop when anointing the candidate's forehead for, at confirmation, and he recommends its use in daily prayer. He says, imitate Christ always by signing thyself sincerely, for this is the sign of his passion. He adds that it's also a way to stand against evil. When tempted, Always reverently seal thy forehead with the sign of the cross, for this sign of the passion is displayed and made manifest against the devil, if thou makest it in faith, not in order that thou mayest be seen of men, but by, the, by thy knowledge putting it forth as a shield. So in its origin, and for those who are sincere about it today, the sign of the cross is not superstitious, showy or superfluous, <coughs> pardon me. It's intended to identify and sanctify every individual and every act as belonging to Christ. You'll often see at the beginning, at the announcement of the gospel, uh, many, and I do this, will make the sign of the cross on their forehead, on their mouth, and on their chest. This is that the gospel may always be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart as a reminder. But the early Christians' choice of a cross as the symbol of their faith is surprisingly odd when you consider the horror crucifixion was regarded with in the ancient world. How could any sane person worship as a god a dead man who'd been condemned as a criminal and subjected to the most humiliating form of execution? This combination of death, crime, and shame put him beyond the pale of respect, let alone worship. Crucifixion is considered the cruelest method of execution ever practiced because it deliberately delays death until maximum torture has been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. It, in fact, was so painful that a new word had to be made up to describe its pain excruciation, means from the cross. The Romans reserved crucifixion for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, or others considered as non-persons. Because of its horror, Roman citizens were exempt from it, except in cases and extreme cases of treason. 
The Jews also regarded crucifixion with horror, although for a different reason. They saw no distinction between a tree and a cross, and so no distinction between a hanging and a crucifixion. And so they applied to crucified criminals the condemning statement of the law in Deuteronomy 21-23, that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. This is why the early enemies of Christianity, Roman and Jew, took every opportunity to ridicule the claim that God's anointed and mankind's savior ended his life on a cross. The idea wasn't just beyond respectability. To them, it was, it was just crazy. And this is one of the realities that lends real tension to this week's gospel reading from Mark 8. Today, we're familiar with cardinal numbers, cardinal points on the compass, cardinal virtues, and cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church, none of which have anything to do with the bird or the color. Cardinal, the Latin word cardinalis, is the word for hinge, like a door or a gate turns or pivots on. This week's gospel describes a cardinal point in the ministry of Jesus. From Peter's perspective, in one brief moment, the whole thing takes a turn, and not for the better. Jesus' question to P and Peter's answer are the crucial hinge, the turning point, in both Mark's gospel and in our own lives. Up to this point, Mark's been primarily narrating Jesus' travels throughout Galilee, Jesus healing diseased, disabled, and troubled people. Jesus teaching in parables, Jesus feeding thousands with a few scraps of food and walking on water and standing up to religious leaders and reaching out to Gentiles. What was he up to? In Mark 3, 19 through 22, some family members even suspected that he was just plain crazy, while the Pharisees insisted that he was in league with the devil. Or was he John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets come to life? For most people, his purpose wasn't compellingly obvious. Hence, Jesus' cardinal question to his followers was and is, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Messiah, seems to put it all in a certain perspective for many Christians. Dramatic healings, ethical parables, wonderful miracles, and open-handed inclusion are seen as the characteristic activities of a really appealing Messiah. Jesus, the caring helper, the wise teacher, the opener of new possibilities, the one who welcomes all. So that's how we should be, caring and ethical and welcoming and to the new and, and being hospitable to all. And that would be a terrific takeaway if the story stopped there. But it doesn't. This confession of faith has a darker side too, one for which the disciples didn't even have a category. He, the Christ, the longed-for Messiah and promised Messiah would be rejected, will suffer mightily, and will be killed. At this point, the cross comes into full and dreadful view. And to Peter, this is simply beyond the pale. To understand why, we have to kind of get in the heads of first century Jews and what they imagined when they thought of the Messiah. Since the time of God's covenant with Abraham, the Jewish people never forgot 
that they were in a very real and special sense God's chosen people. Because of that, they naturally looked for a very special place in the world. In the early days, they looked forward to getting there by what we might think of as natural means. They'd always regarded the greatest days in their histories as the days of David. And they dreamed of a day when another king of David's line would arise and lead them to their rightful place of greatness and power. But as time went on, it became agonizingly clear that this would never happen by natural means. The 10 northern tribes had been mercilessly carried off to Assyria and lost forever. The Babylonians had seized Jerusalem and carried the tribes of Judah away captive. Then came the Persians as their masters, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Far from knowing anything like dominion or power, for centuries Israel had never even known what it was like to be independent. More and more they dreamed of a day when God would directly intervene in history and achieve by supernatural means what natural means could never do. They looked for divine power to do what human power was incapable of. In the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a flood of books were written of the dreams of this new age and the intervention of God. And in them, nine common basic themes emerge. One, before Messiah came, there would be a time of intense tribulation, physical and moral chaos, the birth pangs of a new age. Two, into this chaos, Elijah will come to prepare the way for Messiah. Three, then will come Messiah. The word Messiah and the Greek word Christ mean the same thing. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. Four, the nations will then ally themselves and come together against the champion of God. Five, the result will be the total destruction of these hostile powers. The Messiah being the most destructive conqueror in history, smashing his and by extension Israel's enemies into utter distinction. Extinction. Six, Jerusalem will then be completely restored. Seven, and when that's complete, the diaspora, the Jews who'd been scattered all over the world, will be gathered into this new Jerusalem. Eight, Israel will now become the center of the world and the rest of the world subject to it. Nine, finally, there will come the new age of peace and goodness that will last forever. These were the messianic ideas in in the first century Jewish mind. They were violent, nationalistic, vengeful, and above all, triumphalist. They were God's people, after all. And that's how God is supposed to act. And there's no room for a cross in that picture. So when Jesus connected Messiahship with suffering and death, and especially death on a cross, he was making statements that in context were both incredible and incomprehensible. All their lives they thought of Messiah in terms of irresistible conquest, and now they're being presented with an idea that simply staggered them. Besides Peter's deep love and concern for Jesus personally, this is why. He protested so emphatically. And why, Jesus, and why did Jesus so sternly rebuke Peter in response? Because Peter was putting some of the exact temptations that were assailing Jesus into words. 
At this moment, he had to have been refighting the battle of the temptation in the wilderness. This is the devil tempting him again to fall down and worship him, to take his way instead of God's way. There's some really deep stuff going on underneath the service here, way more than Peter just kind of missing the boat. So you can only imagine then how Jesus' subsequent teaching was received. Anyone who wants to follow him must do the same thing. They must deny themselves and take up their own cross. And Jesus' words are quite emphatic here. To deny ourselves is to behave towards ourselves as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. The verb deny is exactly the same. He disowned him, repudiated him, turned his back on him. So self-denial isn't withholding luxuries like chocolates, cake, cream in our coffee, or cocktails, although that might be, in fact, a good place to start. It's actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to have or to go our own way. And taking up your cross here doesn't refer to muddling through some irritation or inconvenience. It's not keeping calm and carrying on. Rather, it involves the way of the cross, which everyone there would have understood clearly because they'd seen it firsthand every day. The picture here is of an already condemned man forced to carry his cross to the place of his own execution as Jesus would be required to do. This is a demand for everything, which is why, like Peter, we fail to respond fully to Jesus' question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Maybe not who you thought. This cardinal point, this hinge in Mark's gospel points to a stark contrast between what Martin Luther called the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is built on assumptions about the way God is supposed to act in the world and confirms what people want in a God. The theology of the cross, however, is grounded in God's self-revelation, in weakness of suffering and death, and this challenges everything people imagine God should be. For Luther, to know God truly is to know God only in Christ, which means to know God hidden in self-denial and suffering. A theology of glory prefers accomplishment to suffering, glory to humiliation, and wisdom to folly. The theology of the cross knows God only in Christ crucified. God's self-revelation and power comes in the form of the cross, and thus it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, appears as foolishness and weakness to a world that looks for wisdom and strength in its God. The truth about who God is contradicts human assumptions. Grace and mercy are freely and without limit poured out to repentant sinners, not reserved for the righteous. Thanks be to God. God's strength is exposed in weakness, not displayed in power. 
God's wisdom is discovered in parable and paradox. Not set out in bumper sticker self-help maxims. And God's life is disclosed in death. Thus it is that Jesus says those who want to save their life will lose it, while those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will save it. God isn't conformed to human expectations or desires. Rather, God is found in uncertainty, in danger, and in suffering, precisely where human wisdom perceives God's absence. Luther's theology of the cross is given a really powerful contemporary voice by Anglican theologian John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, which I would recommend to you, and I am rereading this Lenten season. Stott sets a theology of the cross against an evangelical culture of pathological optimism, national progress, technical technological advance, personal fulfillment, and megachurch growth. Embracing a true theology of the cross is really difficult when dominant expressions of the Christian faith in North America prize success and effectiveness, personal fulfillment, freedom from suffering, and dominance in national political life. A theology of the cross, however, demands that faith is not certainty. Hope is not optimism, and love is neither undemanding nor painless. Mark's gospel completely rules out a Christology built on a romanticized portrait of a tolerant Jesus who only helps and heals and welcomes. It also precludes a Christology in service to our own prosperity, success, health, and ease. To confess Jesus as Christ is to recognize his dying body on the cross and to recognize that discipleship is the way of our own cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.